Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is our uh, first class on the on chapter eight. Uh, there'll be two classes next uh, next Thursday. We'll look at the five clinging aggregates. Um, dependent origination describes how the five clinging aggregates become the five clinging aggregates, and so the the <clears throat> the five clinging aggregates are are the Buddha's description of the personal experience of ongoing stress and suffering, known as dukkha. That's just a lead into what we're going to cover next week, but this is how it occurs. The um, the Paticca Samuppada Sutta, the primary sutta on dependent origination, describes what the Buddha awakened to. It is the um, it's probably the most corrupted teachings of the Buddha in modern Buddhism today. And it and when you understand what the Buddha taught as dependent origination. It's easily understood why this has has to be corrupted to um, develop and uh, and encourage a magical or mystical or speculative type of dharma, something that cannot be experienced during a human life, because anything other than that is not what the Buddha taught. So, um, this is the Buddha's description of the origination of the distraction of ongoing stress and suffering known as dukkha, where it originates on. It, it, stress and suffering originates on and is dependent in these elements, and there's 12 of them. The Buddha begins with, from ignorance, and it's a very specific type of ignorance, it's ignorance of four noble truths. From ignorance of four noble truths as a requisite condition, that means that when there's no more ignorance of four noble truths, then then ignorance has no grasp on us anymore and the following conditions don't flow. Without that understanding, without that knowledge of four noble truths, this is what occurs. From ignorance of four noble truths as a requisite condition come fabrications. Fabrications are a, a corruption of what we're experiencing because we're ignorant of what's actually occurring as a human being. And that can be simplified as saying we're, we're taking what is occurring in a personal manner. You've heard me say over and over again that the essence of the Buddha's Dhamma is to understand that nothing is personal in the world unless we make it so. And that's where our stress and suffering arises from. So from those fabrications, as a requisite condition, comes consciousness. Now this isn't some grand cosmic consciousness with a, with a big C. It has nothing to do with a, uh, a universal type of one mind. It's it's ongoing thinking rooted in what? Rooted in the fabrications that are born of ignorance. So it's ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. There's nothing noble about this type of consciousness. From that type of consciousness, again, as a requisite condition, comes name and form. The Pali or Sanskrit phrase for name and form is namarupa. And it simply means just this. It means that I have given an identity to this form. I have created a self-referential thing out of something that that cannot be and should not be. And we do that with both the physical form that we have and then as we identify things in the physical world form that we like and dislike. And as soon as we do that, the Buddha describes it this way, we're joining with our suffering by joining or attaching ourselves to, to people and events of our lives in a personal manner. Again, I like it, I don't like it. That's Namarupa. From that self-identification, from name and form, as a requisite condition, comes a sixth sense base. Excuse me for a minute. And this is where we start manifesting in a, in a experiential way the results of our own ignorance. From, name, from Namarupa, from name and form, from self-referential views as a requisite condition comes the sixth sense base. The sixth sense base are our five physical senses and the sixth sense of consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. 
So when you understand this as the Buddha intends it, that consciousness is, an, is interpreting what's coming in contact with my five senses from that mind rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And the Buddha even goes in, in other suttas, uh, he, 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 he labels each sense as having its own consciousness. In other words, there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, etc., etc., etc. Depending on what most has our attention, is still interpreted through an eye consciousness that's rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And so the only way to extricate this ourselves, the only way to really trust what's coming in through our senses as true reality, as a, as a mature human being would experience this, is to let go of all of those views rooted in ignorance. And again, that's what the Eightfold Path, what we're all doing here, is all about. So, from the sixth sense base, as a requisite condition, comes contact. One of the most obvious things in the world, of course, but the Buddha needs to point it out, Coming in contact with what? Coming in, in contact with a type of consciousness that's interpreting it wrongly. And so it's from that contact that we have the visceral experience of our own ignorance and we start personalizing it. And this is a very intricate and subtle process that the Buddha is describing. But once it's understood, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, it's like the most obvious thing in the world. This is what we do to create all the stress and suffering that we experience, that we contribute to in our own lives. And you'll see where, where the Buddha resolves all this. From contact, and I'm not going to talk too much about this one, I'm just going to go into the next. From contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. Makes sense, doesn't it? From feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. And craving has two components. Craving for more of something is the obvious aspect of craving, but craving for less of something is still craving, isn't it? So wanting the experiences, the people and events of my life, my life to be any different than they ought than what's occurring right here and right now is an aspect of craving. It immediately causes a distraction from what's occurring and entangles my mind in the wish that something be different rather than the presence of mind to stay right here and right now. And this is where human life is experienced. This is where it's most meaningful, right here and right now. And right here and right now is the only moment in the continuum of time that we can actually practice the Dhamma. There's no Dhamma yesterday. There can be no Dhamma tomorrow, despite what a lot of modern Buddhism places, if you have enough faith and you do enough rites and rituals, Tomorrow there will be Buddhism for you. The Buddha never taught anything like that. He taught a way to, to, deep, to develop profound concentration so that we can unite our mind and our body. That's called jhana meditation. And within the framework of the Eightfold Path, keep our mind and our body right here and right now by eliminating all distraction. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. I decided I want something... Again, I want more of what is occurring or less of something. I'm still clinging. And it's by that clinging that I'm maintaining my aversion to what's occurring. From clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. One of the most misunderstood phrases in all of the Buddha's Dhamma and one of the most misunderstood in this context. In the context of the Buddha's Dhamma and especially in this particular sutta, the Buddha is referring to what becomes of ignorance. And so there's no noble becoming that the Buddha is referring to unless the process of continuing to become further ignorant is recognized and abandoned. And then in that moment, we have the choice to become awakened. That's the only reference that the Buddha ever attached to becoming. And the reason why I'm saying that is the more magical and mystical lineages um, will always attach a magical and mystical result to becoming. And it's always a non-physical um, type of becoming as a reward for faith. The, again, the Buddha thought that was, that was a, a very distracting, very pernicious way of maintaining ignorance by projecting our minds into the past based on something that occurred, into the future based on something that occurred in our past. He saw that the only way that a human being can truly awaken, 
truly develop full, full human maturity is to develop it right here and right now, to recognize the ignorance that's, that's the block to that full human maturity. From that becoming, from becoming further ignorant, as a requisite condition comes birth. What is it, the Buddha teaching here? We're giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. It's not some, it's not some um, magical human physical birth. And I won't get too deep into that, but there's three modern and major traditions that teach a corrupted version of that one line and say that there's three references here to the Buddha giving it doesn't even it's even hard to explain there's three different ways that a human being can become born into a physical life but they're all based on speculative beliefs and all some form of a misunderstanding of karma and i'm just explaining that as best as i can because it's just nonsense what the buddha's talking about is giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance that's the only choice that we have at any point in our human life from that birth from giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance from birth as a requisite condition comes aging, sickness, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Then the Buddha doesn't leave us there. He, he, be, he describes in slightly more detail and in reverse order each of those 12 links. Now what is aging and death? Aging is decrepitude, brokenness, graying, decline, weakening of the faculties. So why is the Buddha teaching this? And why is it so significant? This is one of the most significant uh, suttas the Buddha ever taught. It's because we are... Um, and and it's, a, it's an aspect of this very subtle form of self-loathing uh, that every human being has. But we're supposed to. It's good to have an aversion to the natural process of sickness, aging, and death. And it's by that aversion that we start losing our minds in a very literal sense and that we don't want to have that. And we think that it's reasonable to resist it rather than to, to accept it. So what the Buddha is teaching, and this is why you often hear, hear me describe him as he, was, he had a radical acceptance of human life in that he recognized the things that most people have an aversion to. And the first thing he said is birth is dukkha. Birth is stress and suffering. What does he mean by that? He means that as a consequence of having a human life, there is going to be stress and suffering. He teaches that immediately, so we start realizing, realizing that stress and suffering is impersonal. It occurs to all human beings, but the, the, the reaction to it is what we instigate on ourselves, what we, what we perpetrate and prosecute on ourselves from our own ignorance. And that's the essence of the Buddha's Dhamma. And he can, the Buddha continues, death is the passing away of the aggregates, the ending of these five, five aggregates, the ending of time, the interruption of the life faculties. Why is that significant? Because the Buddha is telling us, even from 2,600 years ago, that we get one shot at this. If you're going to awaken, now's the time. Because what is death? It's the ending of the faculties. He's, he's, he's stating very clearly that as far as this awakening process that we're experiencing right here and right now must be completed right here and right now. The opportunity is now, not in the future. He avoids every type of speculation in, in doing so and, and in describing it this way. And there's some suttas that we're going to take up in another structured study that make this really clear. The Buddha continues. Now, what is birth? Birth is the, the descent, the coming forth, the coming to be. Birth is the appearance of the sixth sense base and the five clinging aggregates. The Buddha is not describing uh, coming down from some ethereal plane and, and uh, manifesting human life. He's describing the descent from wisdom rooted in ignorance now coming in contact with the sixth sense base, giving validity to what I'm feeling where no validity should apply. Do you see how this relates back and directly to dependent origination? Does anybody not? Okay, excuse me. So now the Buddha's going to teach what becoming is without any ambiguity. Now what is becoming? Becoming is sensual becoming, form becoming, and formless becoming. The Buddha's describing... The whole human process that's rooted in, in myth, mythology and, and magic. 
he's saying that all of that, the idea of, of some magical form arising or a formless plane where this consciousness could evolve to is fabricated. It can only lead to stress and suffering. And what is clinging and maintaining? There are four types of clinging. Clinging to sensual stimulus, clinging to views, views rooted in ignorance of four noble, noble truths or conditioned views, clinging to precepts and practices, clinging to the belief that if I can just act a certain way or engage in certain number of rituals or believe in, in a, uh, a Buddhist heaven-established God, one of the major forms of Buddhism is Nichiren Buddhism, Buddhism and there's a few other variant names, but basically the, the belief is that if you do all these things right and you keep saying this one chant over and over again, and when you die, if that chant is on your, lip, on your lips, you'll be taken to Amitabha Buddha heaven where you'll be taken care of forever and ever and ever by Amitabha Buddha. That's one of the major forms of Buddhism. And I'm just using that as an example. That's what the Buddha is talking about is not what he's, he's teaching. He's teaching how to achieve full human maturity right here, right now, in this lifetime. Excuse me. Clinging to precepts and practices and clinging to a doctrine of self. And all of that, all of that clinging to precepts and practices and, and fabricated dharmas is a way of continuing to, to establish a doctrine of self. And if you think about all the magical and mystical schools of Buddhism, it certainly is clinging to a doctrine of self to hope to establish myself in some future type of manifested, unmanifested form, isn't it? Even though it has absolute, that type of existence has absolutely no relation to a human life. And, and for me to, to desire it and to believe in it is a, den, is a denial of who and what I am. That's why the Buddha described that as, as like live, having a living death, living that type of fabrication. And he describes awakening as the deathless state. It's free of that type of, of fabricated thinking. The Buddha continues, and what is craving? There are six classes of craving. Craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for, for smells, craving for taste, craving for physical sensations. And that's craving for all the things that come through our five physical senses. And really what is the most debilitating but subtle, and craving for ideas. Why? Because once we decide something, once we attach ourselves to a view or an idea, it's very, very difficult to let go of it. Why? Because that idea, that thought has become me. The Buddha continues, and what is feeling? Well, feeling has six classes as well. Feeling arises from eye contact, near nose contact, etc., etc., covering the same grounds. And what is contact? Phenomena coming in contact with the five physical senses and that sixth sense of, of ongoing consciousness rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And what is name and form? Feeling, perception, intention, attention, meaning what we focus on, a, 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 an aspect of wrong mindfulness, and contact. Discriminating consciousness is name. Discriminating in this case means putting a my label on it, self-identifying with something. Discriminating, uh, uh, excuse me, <coughs> discriminating consciousness is name. The elements of water, fire, earth, and wind that which makes a physical form is called forms. This is what we are, earth, fire, wind, and water. Name and form is discriminating consciousness bound to or clinging to physical form. And this is an, this is an impermanent experience that we, by clinging to it, we're, we're hoping to make something permanent that cannot be made permanent. And what is consciousness? There are six classes of consciousness, again, related to the five physical consciousness and consciousness of clinging to thoughts, words, and ideas. And what is ignorance? Ignorance is not knowing stress or not knowing the self-imposed process. Ignorance is not knowing stress, not knowing the origination of stress, wrong views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, not knowing the, the origination of stress, not knowing the cessation of stress, and not knowing the eightfold path leading to the cessation of stress. This is ignorance. 
again, this is a very specific type of ignorance that the Buddha is teaching. He's not saying that your human beings are just ignorant and so there's, there's no hope. He's saying that you're simply ignorant of these four noble truths and the process of developing wisdom where, the, where there once was, as described here. That, that third um, aspect, not knowing the cessation of stress or, or dukkha, not knowing the cessation of dukkha, refers to the third noble truth, that knowing the cessation of, duke, of dukkha is possible. And then it immediately goes into that fourth noble truth. It is the eightfold path that develops that cessation of ongoing self-referential views that contribute to the stress and suffering that I experience. Now, from the remainder, remainderless fading and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of those fabrications. Remember how this whole process started. From the cessation of fabrications comes the cessation of consciousness. From the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form. From the cessation of ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths comes the cessation of self-referential clinging to all things that arise and pass away. It's the, it's the ending of a distracted mind prone to, to disappointing and stressful situations. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense base, self-identifying with what's arising and passing away. From the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact. But what it's really saying is, comes the cessation of using contact to continue my self-referential fabricated views. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling, again the same thing, of using my fabricated views to reinforce what my feelings are telling me, because the feelings are rooted in ignorance. It's, it's, it's a wrong type of feedback. From the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and maintaining. From the cessation of clinging and maintaining comes the cessation of becoming further ignorant of four noble truths. From the cessation of becoming further ignorant comes the cessation of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of sickness, aging, death, pain, distress, despair. Wisdom brings a cessation to this entire mass of suffering. I'm going to stop there. What the Buddha is referring to there at the last is the normal stressors of life will continue. But since we no longer take things personal, the ordinary disappointments in life, the thing that every human being must experience, we will no longer take personally. And so there will be no, no, long, no more added stress or self-imposed stress Again, because we're not taking any, any aspect of life in any personal way. And in that way, each and every moment is meaningful. Why? Because I'm experiencing it. I don't need this moment to be any different than it is. And so we're able to experience disappointment at a profound level, perhaps deeper than we've ever known before, because we don't need it to be any different. But the same is true for something that might be in the past so elating that it takes us out of our body and is another huge distraction. So there's an, this is what the Buddha teaches as that fourth foundation of mindfulness, a mind resting in equanimity no matter what's occurring, whether it's something that might have, have um, brought us a very unpeaceful, distressing state or something that might have elevated us again out of our bodies is experienced in a mind rooted in equanimity, and there's some, and that's the only way to to experience the profound depth of each and every moment that human life is. So that's my talk. We'll get into the five clinging aggregates next week. Uh, so I want to hear what what your how your practice is going, what you learned from uh, from today's talk and this chapter, uh, and especially as it relates to what you've learned so far. And uh, I'm going to start with Kevin up in my top left corner. How are you, Kevin? John. Hello, everybody. Um, in case um, others didn't meet me, I'm Kevin. I'm usually um, in the Saturday Sangha and Saturday group, but um, today I came on Thursday. So I, I've actually been through the book and the course five times now, I think. Yeah. I've been doing this a while. And we had just finished it in our um, group on Saturday a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it is difficult. You know, people are expressing. Um, 
that it is a difficult teaching, and I always found it to be one of the most difficult teachings as well. And then, you know, thinking, how am I going to keep these links all in the right order? And uh, what, what if I miss one? What if this, I don't understand it correctly? But in a way, it all, in repetition, it does come, and it makes so much sense. You know, it really has to do with the bi-clinging aggregates, aggregates, the not-self, having contact and then having craving. And it's like the, the second noble truth that the source of all dukkha is craving. So that's really, to me, it's like the center of it. And if we, John always says, if you break any one of these links or eradicate any of these links, you can eradicate the whole, um, all of dependent origination. And I think the most important one that Buddha points out is craving. Yep. So, and if we don't, then stress will continue, will continue to create dukkha in, in our lives. So that's essentially what it boils down for me. Yeah. So. Thank you, thank you, Kevin. It, it is it, this so this understanding that the the root of all stress and suffering is craving, which simply means wanting what's occurring to be somehow different than it is, and of course it can't be. Uh, and the, one thing I, I I should say that this uh, and Kevin alluded to, we can get too fixated on on where all these links are and how they link together. This is just describing that from ignorance of. Four Noble Truths, we create stress and suffering in our lives. And by developing the Eightfold Path, you will then start breaking or unraveling one or all of these these links. And another thing to say about this, this process from ignorance of Four Noble Truths happens, you could say, almost outside of time. In other words, we, if we try to focus too quick, too much on it, to try to see the whole process, we'll never find it. It is something to just recognize that the process has ended once we develop an understanding of Four Noble Truths. And, and that's enough to know about it, to, to, uh, to guide our, our Dhamma practice. So, Tom, how are you? Uh, thanks, John. I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah, definitely. It is, there's a lot in this, yeah. the teaching this week, like a lot of, um, it's quite easy to get lost. Um, I... I know I fundamentally I get it like I get the whole I get I get the um, the fundamental aspects of the teaching and I when I bring it back to um, you know craving and to how craving leads to suffering then that makes complete sense to me and by the way so does this I mean dependent origination does make sense to me I think it's just sometimes, yeah, when you have so many layers of it and you have one link to the next and then it's the terminology as well, which which yep. sometimes, you know, confuses me, some terms that are used and I I get I get um, a bit lost in it, but then I come back to it and I'm I investigate it and it does make it does make sense. Yeah. I just I think it's the terminology actually more than anything that occasionally throws me off. Um so um um yeah, I, I think something I'm going to try and do this weekend actually is something that would be really helpful for me um, would be just to create a little diagram of this, um, like something I'm quite a visual learner. And so to sort of maybe to read your chapter, uh, the chapter again, and just to put it all down on one page and then, you know, have arrows going in one direction or the other direction according to which link it is or which... Um, you know, factor, of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that might, I think, help me just to sort of get absolute clarity on it. Um, so uh, I don't know if you think that's a good idea, um, but I would be maybe some homework, I think, for me. Oh, <laughs> to try I, I, get my head around this, this weekend. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. I, there is a chart that Jen on the website um, that one of our other teachers uh uh, drew and I posted it. If you just did it, you know, just did a search on dependent origination, I think you'd find it. But I think it's a great idea. Um, but again, don't don't overemphasize. I mean, this is eventually, if you're going to develop the Dhamma to its conclusion, and you all will if you stay with it, you have to understand this. But it's not something that um, will easily yield to uh, a full frontal attack. In other words, it's just a, an aspect of staying with it. Uh, that you'll really understand this process. But again, I'm not dissuading you from whatever you think 
will help you understand. I think that's great too. Just don't put, if you don't get it right away, that's okay. Um, some people do, some people don't. It took me a while to understand the importance. And it really wasn't until um, I understood that everything the Buddha taught, the human Buddha taught, was in the context of dependent origination and Four Noble Truths. Was I able to understand the rest of the suttas, how to apply them properly, and really how to restore them into useful form? So uh, th- this is key, but you're understanding it. Uh, uh, th- and again, there's, there's a lot to, to apply. Um, the, the, the more you deepen your own experience of the Dhamma, the, the more you'll understand this too. So thank you, Tom. Thanks, John. Alex, how are you? Hi, John. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good. I, I too am a visual learner, so I look forward to Tom's diagram next week. <laughs> well, and if, if you could send it over, if you if you don't mind, send it over to me, and I'll put it on the website. Like I said, and look up Jens too. I think you'll find it useful. <laughs> I think you should host the session, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's uh, that when Tom said that, I thought, yeah, that's what I need to read in the chapter. Um, yeah, and, and listen to your summary. Um, I, it's getting there. I'm getting there, but um, this was definitely the most challenging one for me. Um, but very interesting, and like Tom, I think I get it, but I just need to go over it again, probably a few times, maybe you know, a lot of times. But um, yeah, I guess all that's sitting with me now from that from that teaching and, and everything else is it. It all seems so um, not straightforward, but underneath it all, it's pretty simple. All I get this image of is the, the Buddha, like in this awakened state just being like guys can you not see what i can see yeah um so my um question is uh, did the buddha teach about how long it takes to did he did he did he hint at all about how long this takes to to grasp because for me it feels like it's going to take me a while (laughs) no he said about 54 55 weeks and he never (laughs) He never put a time frame on, on anything. At least I never came across it, uh, including, by the way, I, he never put a time frame on how long we should meditate. He never said, you know, yeah. you got to. So um, and it's interesting that there's many, many stories of people that heard one or two or three teachings and and awakened. Uh, but then there's the Buddha's cousin, Ananda, who was with the Buddha uh, for most of his teaching career, and every sutta the Buddha gave for the last 25 years of his life, he was his, the, his cousin's chief attendant, and he did not awaken until about a month after the Buddha passed. Uh, and it was kind of out of frustration and a little bit of anger that Ananda finally got it, but I won't, I won't tell that story. That's, that's really not, of course it's a concern, and, and it's, it shouldn't be diminished that or maybe ignored would be a better word, that the reason why we're engaging in Dhamma practice is to awaken. There is a, a purpose and a goal. But we again, we can be too overly focused on the goal and not realize that, yes, the process is right here and right now. So um, what I will say is that the more one engages in right effort, meaning the more one integrates the Eightfold Path as their framework and guidance for what they're experiencing, the, the quicker the progression is, but and I that but again that can't be forced. It has to be a natural thing. There's, um, it, it, there's I'm thinking of someone in our sangha now who, who really struggled for many many years, almost from the beginning of my teaching, and then almost overnight, I would say in a period of two or three months, they they finally got it, and uh, so it sometimes it's just like that. You know, in my case, it, it took a little while of just focusing on what the Buddha taught before I understood it and gained some benefit. Um, every one of you on screen, I can say, I, by what you're saying, what you're sharing here in the Sangha, you're getting it. So, uh, Alex, did I cut you off or did you have anything else? Pardon? Say again? Did I cut you off? Did you have something else you wanted to add? No, I've always got more to say. Um, <laughs> Me too, I guess. Uh, I might, I might follow up. I've been meaning to email you for a while, so I might follow up for a one-to-one or something. If that's okay. Yeah, please, at any time, and that, that's that's for all of you too. If you, if you have a question, just send me an email. Kevin, did you have something you wanted to say? 
Yeah, John, I think just, um, it's interesting just time-wise. I think it's in the Satipatthana Sutta that Buddha says at the end of it, if you maintain this for seven years, yeah. then um, either you will have non-return or you will have, you will attain Nibbana. And then, then he says, yeah, but it could be even seven months. Yeah. And then he says, well, seven, seven weeks even. And then there are some, it might be seven days. Yeah. And um, so it could be a matter, it's sort of like maybe how far along you are and then it hits you. So we, we all hope for that. Yeah, I always took from... If you got from, um, from seven months and you didn't get to Nirvana, then you had to wait six and a bit more years. <laughs> well, what, it, what, what, the, what the Buddha is also teaching by saying it in that way is that it doesn't matter. Whether it takes seven years, seven days, or seven minutes, that doesn't matter. What, it, what does matter is to engage with an authentic Dhamma that can actually develop that. Uh, and you know, there's other suttas that help guide us. One of the reasons why I featured the Bahia Sutta right on the homepage is that's a sutta where the Buddha teaches that you never know, and that sutta, the, the, uh, the, the monk Bahia got killed by a cow shortly after he, he awakened. And so the, the reference is that we never know when the cow's going to get us. So if you want to awaken, you might as well do it right now. You might as well put all the effort you can into this moment. But again, it, it can't be overemphasized to the point that then Dhamma practice itself becomes stressful. But there's a fine line that I found between enough motivation and too much motivation, you know, but you all have to find that out yourself. But you can always ask me if you, you know, just, and that's something that sometimes people have a, a difficult time to gauge. And, you know, I'm always here to offer my opinion as some of you know. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Jordan, how are you? Well, thank you. I'm doing well. Um, yeah, just before this call, I was watching the horror movie, so I was a bit of a transition into, uh, into meditating after that. What was it? By... Sorry? What was the movie? Well, it was a series, actually. It was a French one called Marianne. It's on Netflix at the moment. Okay. Yeah, ghosts and horrific stuff. Um, but yeah, surprisingly, I started off concentrating on my breath really well and I thought maybe this is maybe I'm going to concentrate for only on my breath for the whole 20 minutes but it didn't last um, um, yeah this was like you guys are saying I really appreciate your your comments it uh, resonated with me about uh, um, how much information and how much um, how much sub level structure there is to this which I didn't expect and mm. yeah, it does seem to be over, underpinned by um, being aware of your craving and being aware of your of your clinging, and when, when you're aware of that, and um, kind of recondition your mind to to know when you're doing that. It's, yep, so that's, a, that's a process. But um, yeah, there's a lot more um, different steps that I, I hadn't considered. And I got um, a bit stuck on the name, getting my head around the name and form. Is that about, um, uh, in terms of clinging, if you have an idea and you put a name to the idea and you kind of make it physical as well, then it becomes harder to, to get out of your mind. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, it's exactly that. Thank you, Jordan. We okay. and we do that with with things that we would think really don't matter, and many things don't. Like I, I prefer oak trees over birch trees. You would think that doesn't really matter, but there could be there could be a time when I'm walking through a beautiful birch forest and I'm disappointed because it's not all oak trees. And I'm I'm being a little silly, but it's because my preconditioned way of looking at trees that. I like oaks over over birch makes that moment disappointing and distracting. We do that with much more important things or seemingly important or significant, but it, it all comes down to I've attached myself to a certain view that things must be this certain way rather than what's occurring. I think you've heard me saying it recently in the past few weeks that the Dhamma brings an understanding of the of the significant difference between acceptance and approval. 
Human beings have it hardwired that in order for me to accept what's occurring, I first have to approve of it. It's in the approval process that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm making in that moment. I'm setting a condition on something. Rather than accepting something that's occurring, why? Because it's occurring. It really is foolish or immature. That's why I say the description of awakening is full human maturity. It really is immature to insist what, what's happening now, what's already occurred, be different than it is because it's already occurred. That doesn't mean that there's not a, 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 um, a more simpler or more pleasant experience. But as soon as I, I make on something, as soon as I attach a judgment to it, now I'm attaching myself to it. So the Buddha taught a radical way of living in a world that is prone to stress and suffering in a way that a mind is not grasping after that or clinging to stress and suffering, in a word, calm and peaceful. Thank you, Jordan. Josh, good to see you. Thank you, John. Hi, everybody. I don't even know where to begin. I... <laughs> Speaking of time, I'm 80 years old, and uh, it may be a race between when I croak and when I awaken, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do want to say that even if I never reach awakening, the lessons I've learned here are are very helpful to me yeah. in terms of uh, really trying hard not to take things personally as I used to. Yeah. Especially when I'm hearing things that upset me or, or I disagree with. Uh, instead of obsessing on that, just to kind of say this is not me, this is not mine, this really has nothing to do with me because I have this kind of intellectual understanding at this point that all my grasping and clinging is kind of based upon this conditioned mind that I've lived with for 80 years that have tried to to make sense out of Josh and, and uh, uh, now I know that uh, I really don't have to anymore, but but uh, I'm somewhere in between uh, self and not self, and um, and confused between what the two are. And that's all I got to say. Thanks. Thank you, Josh. Um, the difference between self and not self is wisdom. It's, an, it's the knowledge of what is I making and, and what's not. But, and that's just what we're all developing here. You know, that's, what, what, that's the essence of the knowledge, the essence of this teaching too. And if that seems a little vague, it, 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 just, it just takes, it takes a, little, a little while to understand that. You know, the, you know, the uh, self and not self in a mind that is still developing the Dhamma um, are really two sides of the same coin. But then as we develop the Dhamma, we're able to separate that that coin and just hold on to what's valuable, you know, what what's really true. And just one more thing that Josh said. I remember very early in uh, developing the authentic Dhamma, what the Buddha actually taught, having that same thought that even if I don't get there in this lifetime, it's just a better way to live my daily life. And I had never felt that about anything. I studied a lot of different religions and the ideas and philosophies since I was a you know, a teenager, um, and it's the first time I ever had that experience. This, this is just a way of living a human life in peace, but it also leads to awakening, full human maturity. So, thank you for reminding me of that, Josh. Julian, how are you? Hi, John. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. Um, first of all, thanks a lot, John, for helping me out with the books. Um, and troubles getting those here in uh, Germany somehow. And um, finally got mine last week. Great. So I'm a little bit of um, overwhelmed with today's class, I must say, because I've tried to catch up all the first chapters until today, but I didn't manage at all. Um, somehow um, it influenced me to reduce my time of meditating. 
Um, that's just what I can kind of share for today is like, um, I, until last week, I might tried to focus for 10 minutes twice a day. Mm -hmm. And I've reduced that time to four minutes actually twice a day. And it works pretty well. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, um, I, I benefit more from, from having this short period of time, but not having done that many, um, how do you say that, you know, you have um, those gaps where there is no thinking, kind of. Yeah. I have, um, well, or let's say I have less of these moments where I catch up in the thinking. So, as even if the time is less, it's like a better complete experience somehow. Yeah. That's who nice to experience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, thank you for saying that. The, the, uh, again, I never, I never read anything where the Buddha advised anyone to meditate for a certain amount of time. And so I know I don't, and I never have. Um, and this is, this is the reason why the, the, the purpose of meditation is to deepen concentration and, Sometimes a four-minute session is more effective at doing that than a 10-minute session or a 45-minute session. And that's up for you all to, to decide for yourself. Um, and again, if you ever want to talk about that, send me an email, we can. But uh, what, what Julian's doing, what we all should be doing is to find that, that comfort, uh, comfort zone throughout our practice. Uh, I've been meditating for about 900 years now, just for quite a few years anyway, 35 or 40 years. And my practice is 30 minutes twice a day, and it's been that way for years and years and years. Once in a while, I'll just feel like, you know, today I feel like sitting for an hour and a half, and I have the time, I'll go ahead and do it. But that's not part of my regular practice either. So uh, what's most important is uh, consistency twice a day, day after day. Uh, and then we can gradually add time to that. So. Uh, a great class. Does anybody have any questions about today's class or where we are? Just, um, John, um, very quickly, I wanted to ask this earlier. Uh, awareness of the breath. Is there a particular, is it the breath, is the breath coming in through the nose, right? Or, or, or is that where you should be focusing your mind? Not like, because I know some people teach it like, um, you know, observing your, the breath in your belly, right? Or something yeah. like that. Um, what, what what did the Buddha say about that? Uh, the the only instruction was to, to notice the breath, as I say, notice the breath as it's coming through the the nose, through that, you know, as, as if we're breathing with our mouth closed, to just notice the in breath as it passes through our nose and as it as we exhale. If you're if you happen to be congested you can do you know, keep your mouth open. There's nowhere where the Buddha taught to breathe in any other particular way, and certainly not in a way that's based a little bit on imagination. In other words, there's some meditations where you're told to breathe into your belly. Well, we can't. We can only breathe. We can only expand our lungs. We only breathe into our lungs, or breathe into your feet, or breathe into a particular point of pain as a meditation. Uh, that's all well and good, and it might be therapeutic, but it's not jhana meditation. So the Buddha really never identified to, to be mindful of anything other than the movement, the inhalation, and the exhalation. Now, if you're having trouble noticing that, and some people do, um, it's okay to take some really intense breaths. Um, I'm not going to do it here because I'm a little congested. <laughs> uh, but to just to really get the feel of what, that, what it feels like to breathe, and then come back to just being mindful of your breath. Even if that's difficult at times, it's it's... It should be seen as part of jhana, jhana practice to really develop the sensitivity of your breath rather than substitute something else such as a, a movement in your body. And, and, and the reason for why that is then uh, jhana meditation becomes part of our natural way of breathing whether we're on our cushion or off our cushion. Why? Because we haven't placed any conditions on it. But that was a really good, good uh, question. I hope it was a good answer. Thanks, Tom. All right, so we're going to, a few of you talking about reading this uh, chapter again. I think that's a great idea. I'll get the talk posted probably tomorrow if you want to listen to it again, and then we'll do the second half 
of this chapter on the five clinging aggregates. And you'll see as you as we continue through this, uh, these pieces that seem rather disparate now are going to start fitting fitting together for you. So thank you for joining. We'll finish with meta as we always do. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. See you all next week. Thanks, John. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for joining. Good to see you, Dan. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.